0: Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash... I still say forward slash. I'm I'm nearly 51, thank you. Uh, Forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge.
1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here... On this week's episode, Robin is flying solo, we recorded this one a couple of weeks back, and unfortunately, as is occasionally the case during these very weird times, Josie had a last-minute situation with childcare, so she was unable to join us for this particular episode when we were joined by the best-selling American author and neuroscientist, David Eagleman to chat about his new book live wired which is out this week now in fact remember you can support us at patreon.com slash book shambles to get extended editions of each and every episode including this week that is what each and every uh refers to and not only that you'll be helping support us in continuing to make the podcast and everything else we do at Cosmic Shambles, especially at the moment when none of us can go out and do the many live shows we had booked in for this year. A few other things going on on the network. If you missed our Book Shambles live stream last week as part of Royal Albert Home, that is up now on Catch Up. You can find that on our YouTube channel. Robin and Josie and Helen Chersky joined by the astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti And musician Tanita Tikram, who also played a couple of songs for us. So you'll find that on our YouTube channel and the Cosmic Shambles website. And if you're listening to this on the day of release tomorrow, that's August 28th, the first episode of our new three-part documentary series comes out on our YouTube channel and website as well. It's called Atlantis. It's all about the space shuttle Atlantis, and that is presented by... Professor Lucy Green and Colonel Chris Hadfield. So make sure you check that out. And now, on to today's episode of Book Shambles. Here is Robin and David Eagleman.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. And uh, Josie's not here today, though. So it's just my book shambles or my book shambles, and which is hopefully useful because today's guest is someone that we recently had on uh, Influent Monkey Cage and we I think did the least number of questions we've ever done I think you know very often we get to kind of question three and then you know tangential nature of the show means to me. but I think we were still kind of playing around with the preamble of question one by the time we ran out of uh of, of, of running time on that one um so I'm glad to be able to ask question two to our guest who uh we've I've I've, I've talked to before and who is the author of my uh, one of my favorite collections of short stories, some, and uh, has written wonderful books about the brain, including The Brain, very usefully, and incognito. And uh, his new book is LiveWired. We're joined by David Eagleman. Hello, David. Hey, Robin. Great to see you. Now, how often do you have, because I... You know, I could tell your frustration as well. You know, that monkey cage, we just couldn't get out of question one because this to me is the beautiful thing, which is once you say when you're talking about physics, there's a certain number of specifics you can hit. You still get tangential, obviously, but once you get to the human brain, uh, you must have had that before where you go, wow, each question opens up 57 doors within that question.
2: Precisely. Yeah, it's because we've all got one. We all have our individual experience of being a human in the world. So as soon as it comes up, everyone wants to pitch in, you know, appropriately so, everyone wants to pitch in what it is like for them. Yeah, so that's that's why we never get past question one when it comes to the brain. Right, we're going to
0: aim for. I will tell you what, let's start with question two, and then we've entirely erased question one. That that means we've we've already succeeded. Um, the first thing that I wanted to uh, yeah, there's a beautiful quote in uh, your your new book where you say the thrill of life is not about who we are, but who we are in the process of becoming. And yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I you know this is essentially why
2: I wrote this whole book. So the book is about what what we call in the field, brain plasticity, which is the ability of the brain to reconfigure its wiring. And the surprising part, of course, is that your brain is rewiring itself every moment of your life. That's what it does. And so what that means is that, you know, who you were when you woke up this morning is slightly different than who you are right now and certainly different than who you were a year ago or a year hence. So when we look at traditional neuroscience textbooks, you know what you see is a brain that's like a frozen thing. It says, "Oh, this bit's for vision, this bit's for hearing, this is for decision making, and so on." Um, but that's not really how to understand the brain at all. It's a it, it it's a very different kind of thing than we think about when we think about let's say hardware and software. And the only thing I could do in the end was coin a new term for this, so I call it liveware, and that's why the book's called Live Wired, and Liveware is just a very different kind of beast. It's constantly reconfiguring itself to, to optimize itself for operating uh, in the world. And, and therefore, the, you know, the, the only way to understand ourselves is that we are always in the process of becoming something, um, as opposed to just looking at a neuroscience textbook and memorizing the bits and saying, oh, now I understand the brain because I
0: know that this is visual cortex and so on. That was the idea there. But that's, I mean, that is one of the things that I find uh, when I look at uh, pictures of myself, say when I was eight years old, and I think, well, that was the boy that things happened to that meant he became this human being that I am now, but how, but I am not that. But now that's the bit where we kind of, it becomes, and I know obviously people like Bruce Hood have written about the self-illusion as well there, but that bit where, The idea of being this singular through line narrative, this single human being, it's it's quite kind of disconcerting when you first deal with the disparities there in the multitudes, isn't it?
2: Oh, I agree. You know, I start the book with a quotation from Heidegger, one of my favorite quotations, where he says, every man is born as a thousand men and dies as one. And what he meant by that is, you know, you start with all this potential, you know, you could have been an architect and I could have been a lepidopterist. And so, you know, but what happens is you start with those potential and, and then by the time you die, you are exactly who you are. Um, but yeah, that is the interesting thing is the way we change constantly. And the reason you have a relationship with your eight-year-old self is because you have the same history and and resume essentially as that kid and you've got the same name. And so we have this illusion that, you know, you and that kid are essentially the same, although, in fact, you're quite different. In fact, uh, Robin, I don't know if you'd remember this, but this was one of my stories in the book Some, was that in the afterlife, um, you're sort of split into all your different ages and, um, and you know, you get to see all your different ages. But but what happens is the eight-year-olds end up hanging out with other eight-year-olds and the the you know, old yous end up hanging out with other old people and so on, because they just they have less in common than expected. The eight year old you and the 17 year old, the 72 the year old you just don't have that much in common, even though they thought they would. And so they get together every once in a while for like a, a family reunion sort of thing.
0: But otherwise, they just don't have that much in common. See, I'm really excited now by this this other universe you've created where between you and I we're building the most fantastic house of butterflies um the uh with the left <laughs> doctor, the architect but it's um but this is i mean one of the things that I love about whenever I've read your work because everything is you know it's a thought experiment with when you're writing about the very apparatus in which the thought is going to occur and I'm going to leap. I'm going to come back to some of the things I want to talk about. But I, this was something that I really want to talk about at Monkey Edge, because It's one of my favorite things, which is the uh, the bicycle, which is the the bicycle, which I think it was Destin Sandlin, as far as I remember, was, was the right. person who kind of popularized it. Uh, and this is a bike where when you turn the handlebars left, the wheel goes right and vice versa. It goes in the opposite direction. And I was lucky. I, I had a chance to, to play around with it. Uh, I was doing a show in Toronto with uh, with Destin and Chris Hadfield, and it was a really interesting thing because we, we went around the back of Chris Hadfield's house and the bike came out. We'd had a few beers by then and everyone started off very confident. Oh, there must be a way. There must be. A- you close your eyes and, and it won't affect you. You're able to ride this bike. And no one can. I mean, as you know, literally within I would say half a revolution of pedal, you are flat on the ground. It's ha and now you can train yourself as Destin did, but this is a faster to me that that ability to train yourself to do this counterintentional thing, which takes a great deal of time when you're an adult, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, exactly right. Um, and it's because you are having to burn this motor act down into the circuitry. So in other words, you can know cognitively exactly how it works. I just need to turn the handlebar to the left if I want to go to the right. But that doesn't do you any good because to actually operate something as complicated as a bicycle, you're essentially taking on a new body in a sense. Your brain has to figure out how to operate this new body in the world to move where it wants to go. And um, so what it takes Is practice. That's the only way you can learn any kind of motor act, whether that's a tennis serve or a golf swing or a skateboard or whatever it is. And so, um, yeah. What What was interesting about that? One of the things I wrote about is, you know, when Dustin first started this, um, he, you know, over the course of a month or so, he finally learned how to nail it by just practicing over and over. And the 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 way it works is that his his eyes and his balance system and so on are, are looking for feedback. So he realizes, oh, I turned the handlebar this way and I fell, or I turned it this way and I'm heading towards a mailbox accidentally. And so with all that feedback, your motor system eventually figures out what to do, and then it becomes part of the circuitry. But then when he got back on a normal bicycle, he couldn't do it at first because his body had just relearned this thing. Interestingly, after a little bit of practice, he can have two different schema, as they're called, which is like, oh, when I'm on this bike, my motor system does this. When I'm on this bike, my motor system does that. And so now it's easy for him to jump onto either one. And I I mentioned this in the book, but I'm really interested in this idea of schema because this is all done unconsciously. So here's an example. Uh, A while ago, I was throwing a football around with some friends and the football hit my car window and the rear view mirror fell off. Fine. So what happened is, I was driving in, in the car and I kept looking up. And of course I was just seeing the top of, of the trees. But what I was, my eyes were looking for the rear view mirror every time I wanted to see behind me. So my eyes would make a jump, you know, up and to the right. And and it was very jarring because I kept thinking, wait, why am I looking up at the treetops there? But the point is, I only do that when I'm in my car seat and when I'm the driver, in fact, not when I'm the passenger. In other words, if I'm walking along, I don't look up and to the right to see behind me. I would never think of doing that. But it's an unconscious schema of my motor system that when I'm in my car, that's the right thing to do to see this other way. So we have all these schemas burned in. And of course, when you... You know, when you jump on a bicycle or a skateboard or skis or whatever, you're doing completely different motor act than you would normally. And your body knows all the things to do to make that work when you're in that context.
0: And so what what if we because I I think there would have been a time where people, you know, in that kind of that Star Trek Vulcan idea. Oh, imagine if you weren't burdened with emotion. And, and as far as i know you know there have been of, of course you know some people unfortunately do suffer brain damage which basically means that they lose what we might call in the base way the emotional circuitry and and the the problems that that come i mean but this is to me a very interesting thing generally in your research which is so much of our understanding comes very sadly from from damage doesn't it
2: yeah, exactly. I mean, traditionally, that's where essentially all of the knowledge about the brain came from, especially after, for example, World War I, where suddenly there were a lot of um, you know, rifle injuries, where people got parts of their head hit. Um, that was a time when people really started working out, hey, if you lose this part of the prefrontal cortex, here's the deficits that you present with you lose this part over here of the occipital lobe or the parietal lobe these are the deficits and so for you know about a century now there's been this real mapping going on where we figure out you know at least roughly which parts of the brain are doing what nowadays we have you know really nice technology it's still quite crude in many ways but uh, nowadays we can do experiments where we see what areas of the brain are becoming active and yet these, these experiments from damage, in a sense,
0: provide much of the foundation of what we know. And thinking of uh, of, of damage, damage which is, was was not observably physical, you talk in the book about a, a girl who was uh, found when she was six years old, and uh, she had been left in, in a, an appalling and, and destitute situation by uh, her, her parents, and you tell this very interesting, and, and I'm always fascinated by this. It used to often be told about, I think there were two uh, girls who were found in the woods in, in India, as far as I remember, and this used to be the story of the fact that without certain stimulation, there is a point in which our brain will not be able to catch up. If you, if you are left in a, in a situation with, 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 with no stimulation up to the age of six or seven, and and this, this really intro that, that idea that if the neural pruning hasn't happened at a certain point, there's no way you can override that. Is that is that correct?
2: That is exactly right. It it the, the argument I make in the book is that what Mother Nature with, with human brains is you know this this massive plasticity. In other words, to to have the brain absorb the world which is the reason why we have succeeded and taken over every corner of the globe now and beaten every other animal you know tigers are much tougher than us but you know we can get them in zoos because we're more intelligent than they are so um everything about our success has to do with our brain's plasticity the it, that allows us to absorb the world but this is a gamble uh sometimes which is to say you need the right sorts of inputs when you're an infant. And what we see in these cases where a feral child, um, you know, ends up in a, in a terrible situation where they're neglected and abused, is uh, we, we see the extent to which that's true. Um, in other words, that a, a child's brain needs language exposure and touch and love and all of these things, and without that, they're not developed correctly. And by the way, this was also seen with, um, at the fall of Ceausescu in Romania, um, what happened is a lot of adults were getting killed. And so there ended up being a lot of orphans and the organization ended up opening these huge orphanages, but there were too many children compared to the number of staff. And so the staff were told, look, don't talk to them, don't hold them because they'll become too clingy. Otherwise, um, just, you know, feed them and take care of them that way. And so, so this was a massive, tragic experiment that happened because what happened is all these children ended up with massive cognitive deficits because um, they weren't getting the proper input at the age when they really needed it.
0: I mean, that that to me is, is so when we consider the fact that you know we're talking about a story where a three-year-old can actually have half of their brain removed. And then almost all become fully functioning. And a six-year-old is, and I've seen footage of her now, I think there was quite recently, not that long ago, a news programme, you know, now she's, she's she's grown up, she's an adult, and there are still, you know, incredible limitations in terms of of, of communication, in terms of being able to even you, you use cutlery, all of these things. And this seems to me to be one of the things where, I mean, people experience this as well when, they have a relative who perhaps has dementia, which is when we see the exterior, if we see what we consider to be a fully functioned human human exterior, we cannot believe that there can't be some way that we can get through to someone.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. This is a common illusion that we're stuck with all the time. And, and by the way, it's even slightly worse than that because We generally assume, especially when we're young, we generally assume that everybody is just like us on the inside. And even among normally functioning adults, there's a huge variety of what is going on on the inside. And this is, by the way, why psychopaths get away with so much, because they're actually quite different than you and I. They they don't care at all about other people and they just want to manipulate and get what they want and so on. Uh, they can be violent and aggressive and so on, but they look perfectly normal on the outside. And it's just so easy for us always to get fooled by this um, by this sort of thing. Um, and yeah, when you look at somebody with dementia or somebody who's grown up without the proper input, yeah, I, I agree with you. There, there's always this intuition we have about, oh, if we could just say something and reach them, surely they're going to just say, hey, I, you know, here I am. Um, But the tragedy of it is that, yeah, we're only looking at the outside of it and and really who somebody is. It's all it's all in this three pound organ that typically we never see. It's hidden away in the vault of the skull. But that's who they are.
0: That, that seems to me to be one of the most fascinating things about humans uh, beyond most other creatures, as far as we know, which is to have two such separate lives. As we know, many people who, you know, the front and what people display and what is going on inside their head. And, and that seems to me to be sometimes quite a difficult relationship, because for a lot of people, I think even now, there, there isn't enough talk about the disparity between what we see and and, and who we are on, on the inside as well. And, and the more that gets communicated, the more that we're able to understand that the ex. because, I, you know, and, and I wonder how you feel in some of the research that, that, that you've seen and that you've been involved with, whether we are getting more used to accepting this kind of the, the, these many selves.
2: You know, I think that as one grows older, one gets smarter about this sort of thing. But uh, the reason I mentioned earlier that when you're a kid, you have this illusion that everyone is just like you is because, I, I you know, I remember having this as a child. Um, my father is a forensic psychiatrist. And uh, in the Southwest, uh, where I grew up in New Mexico, um, he was called in for all the big mass murder cases. And... Um, you know he would go and have depositions with these uh, accused murderers and um i remember i was once with him at a, a party at someone's house and somebody said to him hey this guy who's now you know on death row um surely he feels regret for what he's done and my father was i was surprised at the surprise with which my father acted that because he said no, he doesn't. He doesn't feel any regret. He said, this guy, you know, he'd spent hours interviewing him. My father said, this guy, when he thinks about going to murder someone, feels the excitement on the inside as a child on the night before Christmas. This is how the guy had described it to my father. And um, my father said, you know, one of the lessons of modern psychiatry is that you can't actually put yourself in someone else's shoes. Much as we'd like to, you really can't understand what it is like to be this guy. Um And so, I remember as a kid, hearing that from my father and thinking deep down, like, oh, I'll bet my father's a little wrong about that. I'm sure this guy really is like me and like my but but hey, I've come to realize through the years that in fact, that's exactly right. We're massively varied as humans the The best analogy I can think of is uh, when I saw the. Poster for Matt Damon's movie *The Martian*, and and it's uh, you know it's one guy standing on the planet of Mars, and I thought, God, that's what it's like. Our our brains are enormously complicated worlds, and each one of us is the sole inhabitant of of our world. And um, actually, my next book, which I'm not going to finish for a couple of years, but I'm uh, maybe sixty percent done now. It's called *Windows on Reality*, and it's exactly about this issue about how you know (laughs) all the parts of reality that we miss but the book ends up moving towards how reality is different inside different heads so for example in my laboratory one of the things i've studied for a long time is synesthesia where about three percent of the population has this where they might you know see letters and it triggers a color experience something like that Um, or they might hear music and it triggers color or a taste in their mouth or they eat something and it puts a feeling on their fingertips they have a mixture of the senses um Synesthesia is not a disease or a disorder. It's just a different perceptual reality. And it wasn't until quite recently, really, that we were able to understand that your reality and your reality might be you know, different from one another. Um, two people sitting right next to each other might have something very different going on in the inside. And of course, people have schizophrenia and psychopathy and hundreds of other things going on that uh, make the way they see the world
0: quite different. See, that that seems to be one of the really helpful things that's, that's come out of a lot of research. One of them is, firstly, the idea of an objective world that we can perceive. You know, unfortunately, politics, and as we're seeing with a lot of the populist politics, it deals in this very binary, here is the truth and here is the lie. And once you start to accept the fact that as you said, our experiences and we can see exactly the same thing. And we can, as we know with eyewitness statements as well, we know how, how poor they frequently are. And yet someone believes, and, and the fact that we're unreliable narrators, even of our own experience of our past, all of those things, to me, some people find that disconcerting. I find that that can be something that is kind of, it's, it can be a freedom as well to go, you know what? Yeah. Let's accept that there's a blurred area.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is all what it what it takes to come to understand what's what's really happening with us. And this is essentially the reason I went into neuroscience at first because I was fascinated by these essentially philosophical questions about who who are we. Um, and you know, as you know, Robin, I you know, I write literature, and this is uh, one of the main themes in my in my literature. Also, is about this question
0: of who we are. What have you found the most disconcerting in terms of over the years with your own experiments and observing other people's work? There must every now and again be something where you go, your initial reaction is, I really don't want it to be this way. I really, you know...
2: I mean it's uh, it's not every once in a while it's every every day yeah and I th- you know my I think you read my book Incognito which is about mm. all the stuff happening under the hood where we feel like oh yeah I mean I'm going to enter the situation and make a decision and so on but but in fact pretty much everything in our lives is is generated at a level that we have no access to and no acquaintance with and then what we do is we have these narrations about oh I'm the kind of person who does this or this is why I did that um, but it may or may not have any relationship with reality, and of course, sometimes we see that in ourselves uh, when when we do things that we regret, um, and, and we look back and we think, God, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I take this action? Um, and it's hard to understand. And um, yeah. And by the way, you know, I, I do a lot of work um, at the intersection of neuroscience and the legal system. And uh, I see this a lot with people who look back at crimes they committed, and they think, God, I, why, why did I make that Why in that moment did I think that was going to be the optimal thing to do? This is not any, you know, that doesn't exculpate them. That doesn't mean they should get uh, let off or something. I'm just saying it's complicated being a human because you look back at things you did last night or last month, and you
0: hardly recognize them. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know uh, about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. See, that that complexity as well, I I find is really fascinating when sometimes you see the case of, uh, say, some, some... kids from a very well-to-do background who've done something pretty bad and very often the judge gives them a more lean or it seems sometimes anyway get they may well get a more lenient sentence because they have far more potential and yet then you see people who've been brought up with far fewer advantages or indeed cruelty and all of these different things and it's that's the bit where to me even when we get to ideas of justice, of understanding that sometimes when we see people who've committed crimes of, of many different levels, this is if you trace all their bits of your life, you go, man, this is a destiny created by the lack of opportunity. And that if, if we lived so I'm not saying it's a very long, long winded way, but it's but it is that bit of trying to understand in a really uh, civilized society, we would be able to look. At the environment and the background of someone and see how they ended up in that situation, perhaps, and change, try and find a way that is not punishment, et cetera, but is about adapting a human. Is that is oh, that yeah. liberal and utopian of me?
2: Well, no, I, uh, I yes, but um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell you just personally, the charities that I donate to are the ones that go right for the first steps of a kid's life. Just as an example, there's one um, that, you know, really cares about daycare centers because especially in poor neighborhoods, these daycare, you know, the parents have to work. And uh, so the kids just get gathered in front of a television and they sit and watch television all day until the parents come back and then the daycare center lets them out. But the problem is these first years are the most critical for getting input and interaction and doing stuff like that. And so that, that sets these kids behind their peers in richer neighborhoods uh, from the very get-go. And so, you know, organizations and charities that try to help it at these earliest stages, that really matters because all of us try to do things at the later stages. But boy, if a kid is off on the wrong foot, it's, it's not his or her choice or her fault, um, but that really sets them back in life. That does So seem- I think, yeah. So uh, yeah. So I think it is liberal and utopian uh, what you said, but it's exactly right. Is from a point of view of brain plasticity, is that's where you can make the biggest changes for the next generation.
0: And I was uh, just going back as uh, when, when we were also talking about uh, um, kind of the, the the inner self and and and, and the outer self. And uh, and for you personally in your life, how have you do you find yourself? catching you know going hang on a minute i know exactly what i know what my mind's doing now i know what my brain and my mind are doing in this way have do you find a day-to-day perpetual pragmatic use of your own research and do you find yourself sometimes becoming the subject of your or frequently becoming the subject of your own observations oh sure uh, only because i spend the most time with myself
2: so it's easy to uh, observe myself uh, that way yeah there you know um I'll just give you one example off the top of my head. One of the things that I wrote about in Incognito is this notion of a Ulysses contract, which is to say, I know that I'm somebody right now, but I'm going to be somebody slightly different in the future. And I know that if I find myself in some tempting situation in the future, then I'm probably going to do the wrong thing. And so what can I do now to actually fence in my future? yourself. So the reason this is called a Ulysses contract is because um, Ulysses or Odysseus, when he was heading back from the Trojan War, realized he had the opportunity to pass the island of the Sion, where, you know, the sailors would hear songs so beautiful that it would, um, you know, it beggared the imagination, but they'd end up crashing into the rocks pursuing him. So you had his men lash him to the mast, and put beeswax in their own ears and you know he said no matter what I do just just keep just keep on this and that way he was able to hear the siren song but but not crash into the rocks what he was doing was the Ulysses of sound mind was setting up a contract with the future Ulysses who he knew would behave badly in that situation and so I feel like that's one place where I've become really good at doing this sort of thing is figuring out all right look I know that even though this is who I am now, I'm going to behave badly in situation X, Y, Z, and so, so this is what I'm going to do. Um, I've I've spoken with many audiences about the Ulysses contract. Um, You know, j- just as one dumb example, you know, whenever I'm whenever I'm going to go to work out at the gym, I usually set up a call with a friend and I say, hey, meet me there at the gym at you know such and such a clock, because I know that when that time comes, I might feel like. Oh, you know, I'm a little busy. Maybe I'm not going to go today. But if I've set up a contract where I'm showing up with a friend, then I have to be there. Um, It it turns out that, you know, when I give talks on this, I've, I've learned about other people's Ulysses contracts in a beautiful way. For example, on college campuses often... When it's finals week and they have to study, what kids will do is switch Facebook passwords with each other and then they'll change each other's Facebook passwords so they can't log in that week. And then when finals are over, then they give each other's passwords back. That's a very clever kind of contract because they're understanding that their you know, future selves will log in and waste time and they don't want to do that. <laughs>
0: so this is just one example of how I, how I implement these things. Well, isn't it amazing? Once you're off social media, how much more you can achieve? The book's great. And it's it is filled with. And and I think it's also, as you said, you you mentioned about being a kind of, you know, cyber optimist. But I think also in terms of you're quite a a neuro optimist as well. I think in a lot of your work, it seems to me that um, so many of the ideas, if you digest them and if you explore them afterwards, they offer hope in terms of the potential of the human mind.
2: Yeah, I think, I I think that's totally right. And I, you know, the only way I can cast this, I think is I feel the same way about the brain that, for example, Carl Sagan felt about the cosmos, which is, it's just, it is this, this world to be explored that is so vast and so much bigger than we are. You know, obviously Sagan was looking outward in a telescope. I'm looking inward in a microscope, but it's, it is a cosmos that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. As you know, you know, the brain is made of eighty six billion neurons, which are the cell types in the brain. Each one of these neurons is trafficking millions of proteins around. Each of these neurons has the entire human genome in it, um, and each is connected to about um, ten thousand of its neighbors. So you've got like point two quadrillion connections in the brain that are changing every second of your life and making these networks and so on. This is just what we know now. And when we look at this vast forest in the brain of all these cells, we don't understand anything now about the structure, how all this stuff works together. You know, artificial uh, neural networks have made this big, um, uh, big splash in the last 20 years. um, And people say, Oh yeah, this is just, this is just like the brain we have neurons and we have connections between neurons but in fact artificial neural networks although they do very impressive stuff right now they're nothing like the brain they just you may know I mean um an artificial neural network can distinguish pictures of cats from dogs at superhuman accuracy but it can't do anything that a three-year-old kid can do like navigating a complex room or navigating a complex social situation or, you know, manipulating adults to get what she needs or yeah, any, any of these things. Um, and if you give an artificial neural network a different task, you say, OK, now don't do cats and dogs, but I now want you to do, you know, distinguish pandas from zebras. Um, it'll fail catastrophically because it's trained up on one thing and that's all it can do. So... Um, There are these massive shortcomings. This doesn't get talked about enough because everyone's so enthusiastic about what these networks can do. But the point is, anyone who tells you, oh, yeah, we've essentially got the brain figured out and we can do these networks based on them, it's just not really true at all.
0: It seems to me that's why. when people get very excited by terraforming Mars, and I kind of think, hey, but there's this great terraformed place that kind of happened naturally. And in the same way, I feel a bit like that with with, with AI as well, which I think is fascinating. But to me, that uh, every day you can have, you know, sometimes many moments where you just pause briefly and you think, wow, what I was just able to do and the number of complex things which don't even and the number of things which are instinctual and all of that, that to to celebrate this you know 4.6 billion years since the beginning of the planet to the point of suddenly you know then we have the evolution of curiosity and all of those possibilities I, I i think it's it is something to 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 celebrate
2: yeah exactly and you know robin because you can see me on video during this podcast um you know so last night i broke my hand um i was playing tag on scooters with my eight-year-old boy and, uh, and I bit it and, and broke my hand. And so one of the things that I've been admiring all morning about my brain is my ability to, first of all, use my left hand, but also do, there's this notion of motor equivalence. So when I need to close the door, normally I would grab the handle and close it, but now I just use my elbow or my hip or something like that. But it's so easy to do to take this very complicated body and just use it in different ways uh, as soon as something goes goes wrong with it and this is this is what i want the mars rover to be able to do is just say oh i what i care about is accomplishing the task given all the affordances that my body gives me how can i do this can I do it with my butt can i do it with my shoe what can i do to to make this task
0: happen to get to my next goal yeah that's fantastic. um thank you so much for oh i wanted to ask you by the way who else who else do you really enjoy uh reading uh in terms of on 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 neuroscience or in some ways who who do you most fear and you think oh no don't write a book on the same thing i'm going to write <laughs> that's interesting. um you know i read uh, uh, there's a
2: a guy who's sort of on the periphery of neuroscience um, named Jeff Hawkins, who wrote a book called On Intelligence many years ago. Now, I guess two thousand or something. He wrote that, two thousand four perhaps. Um, but that was he, he's he's a guy who was studying neuroscience. Then he ended up starting a company, so he left neuroscience, and um, and then he did very well with that company and became wealthy. And then started a neuroscience institute to to do stuff. And I I think his writing is great. Um, you know, guys like Steven Pinker, of course, are always great. Uh, Miguel
0: Nicolales is terrific.
2: Um, yeah, I think, I think we would be colleagues, colleagues like that.
0: Yeah. There's so, there's so many interesting thing, things out there and, and so often you can then play the games that are in the book because you've got the, the uh, software in your head. So it's great. Um, yeah. your book is out, it should be out now. I think 26th of August is the, uh, do you love, I mean, that that bit in terms of the, because I think these are, are quite good times in terms of where art and science mix, where, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, Michael Nyman turned the, the man who mistook his wife for a hat into an opera. Uh, and all of these different ways of going, of, of different honey traps to lure people towards these things are great. Well, that's exactly right. And by the way, I, th- you know, part of the reason I write fiction um,
2: is because. Yeah, that's an interesting description of honey trap. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a way of luring people in to some deep ideas that they're not going to read a an academic journal article on. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm a scientific advisor for the television show Westworld, and you know, my colleagues and I have been writing papers about consciousness for a long time. And, you know, six people on the planet read these papers and these debates and so on. But um, but if you cast that in terms of a fiction show like Westworld, then everybody is really into this thing. Could a robot be sentient? What would it mean? What Would they have free will? Would they not have free will? All these really deep questions they can just enjoy as a story. So I really believe in the power of that stuff in terms of public
0: dissemination of these scientific ideas. Uh, that's why i think i one of the reasons i love philip k dick is so many of his books they're very often the same plot but i don't i don't mind there's just enough twists in that plot and consciousness so much of it seems to be self-consciousness and what he's dealing yeah. with self-consciousness and also the uh, subjective nature of reality so there's a double yes. whammy yes exactly brilliant Thanks, david yeah. thank you so much for joining uh well i would say josie Great. and i but she didn't bother turning up which is just very rude <laughs> And, um, as I said, the, the book is out now. I would also highly recommend going back to uh, um, Incognito is is Canongate as well. Some's Canongate. Isn't right. it? Is, was the brain Canongate? I can't remember if the brain yep, was as yep. well. All, all Canongate. One of our favorite publishers as well. Yes. Uh, thank you so much, David. And sure. uh, I hope to see you when we, we all end up actually being able to be in the same territory again.
2: Exactly. All right. Terrific to see you online, Robin. Talk soon. Thank you
1: thank you very much for listening thank you very much to our patreon supporters if you'd like to become one of them patreon.com bookshambles is the website to go to don't forget to give us five stars and write a lovely thing on itunes or apple podcasts if you can that really helps us out back next week with another new episode until then have yourself a good week bye
0: this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.